You're listening to the RBN Energy Blogcast. This is an audio version of RBN's Daily Energy Blog, which is a fun and informative daily commentary on oil, gas, NGL, and renewable markets. Each morning, we cover commodity fundamentals and industry changes to keep you informed of developing trends across the energy landscape. Wednesday, June 22, 2022. Man in the Box. Energy executives consider Biden's calls for increased supplies and lower prices. Published by David Brazil. In film and television, the box crook trope is where a condemned person is sought as a last ditch effort to pull off some impossible mission or overcome a formidable opponent. In return, a convict is typically offered amnesty or other consideration by the operatives in charge. Millennials will probably think of the recent Suicide Squad movies. For Generation X, The Rock starring Sean Connery was a great example. And for the boomers, it was the Dirty Dozen. Our current situation in the U.S. energy sector may not be quite as thrilling as those movies, but the same plot elements exist. In today's RBN blog, we discuss the predicament faced by industry and political leaders and begin to sort out the various proposals to put a lid on prices and restore energy security. Then-presidential candidate Joe Biden pronounced judgment on the oil and gas industry on September 6, 2019, when he said, I guarantee you we're going to end fossil fuel. After Inauguration Day in January 2021, the Biden administration, in the name of decarbonization, continued to press its advantage against an industry that, with COVID and its resulting demand destruction and low commodity prices, was on the ropes. Policies that would limit supplies were implemented, thereby propelling a transition to alternative forms of energy. And by focusing on supply, rather than demand, a basic understanding of economics told us what was going to eventually happen to prices. Capital fled the sector with big-picture analysts calling the oil patch uninvestable. The U.S. wasn't alone in this effort, of course. Around the world, and particularly in Europe, governments enacted plans to reduce fossil fuel development and invest heavily in renewable energy. Major capital funds and investment firms followed suit. The plan to divert capital away from fossil fuel development worked. Long-term growth plans along the hydrocarbon value chain were scrapped but, despite increased investment, renewables haven't been able to satiate increased demand. By late summer last year, cracks in the plan had already begun to emerge as Europe faced increasing uncertainty about its ability to meet winter gas demand, and gas prices there spiked, to the moon and back. The higher prices might be chalked up to an emerging energy transition premium. Russia's war against Ukraine and the additive war premium was then the catalyst that sent prices spiraling out of control. Vladimir Putin is using energy as a weapon, cutting supplies, forcing commercial terms, for example, pay in rubles, and otherwise weakening the European Union's response to Russia's attack. It is bad enough now, but it will get a lot worse when winter comes around and Europeans are freezing, and their industries are shutting down. Both factors, the energy transition premium as well as the war premium, have had a profound cumulative effect on prices and any response needs to take both forces into account. As energy prices continued to soar, the impact was felt in every sector of the economy, driving up inflation. Some folks outside the industry may have even begun to appreciate the vital role affordable, reliable energy plays in nearly every aspect of our modern lives. Keep in mind that as much as we feel the energy pinch here in the U.S., vulnerable populations around the world will feel the impact much more acutely, with energy security and voter opinions on the line, all options are on the table. That has included pleas to the OPEC cartel and re-engaging with Nicolas Maduro's Venezuelan regime, but the U.S. also has a secret weapon, a better weapon, and we can use it to counterattack that shale in the American energy sector. We can respond quickly and powerfully. 
However, the oil companies and their investors simply aren't going to trust an administration that could move against them when the immediate threat is dealt with and the votes are in. So far, the reason President Biden's recent pleas to oil producers come across as dissonant at best or disingenuous at worst is that he isn't even trying to offer the stay of execution. So, no more posturing with threats of market manipulation and price gouging. And no more threats that hydrocarbons will be gone by 2050. The collective goal is for greenhouse gases, or GHGs, to be reduced, not for energy companies to be dead. Hydrocarbons can be part of the energy transition, as long as emissions are cut and or sequestered, meaning stored permanently underground. The mission starts with recruitment. In fact, if you're reading this on Thursday, Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm may be in the process of meeting with energy executives from ExxonMobil, Shell, Valero, Marathon, Phillips 66, BP and Chevron to discuss a plan in terms of engagement. Like the anti-hero in a movie that first needs to be released from the slammer, the right policy signals must come out of Washington and the right incentives for U.S. energy producers must be in place. U.S. government policy toward energy companies, E&Ps, midstreamers, refiners, etc. must demonstrate that these companies are part of the solution, not part of the problem. They can move heaven and earth if they are part of a team to deliver U.S. energy products to an energy short world, but nobody in his or her right mind would invest in a long-cycle industry if there is no reasonable expectation of a return on investment. So, from here we'll break out various solutions to the current energy crisis into long-term and short-term fixes. The energy transition is going to take a long time. Since energy security is a long-term priority for the administration, messaging should reflect that reality. The single most important step is for the narrative from the top to change from decarbonization at all costs to a policy that balances emissions goals with energy security, reliability and affordability. That would go a long way toward bringing investment back into the space and alleviate the energy transition premium. Other longer-term solutions have been proposed by organizations like the American Petroleum Institute, API. We'll quote their suggestions here in their entirety. Number 1. Lift development restrictions on federal lands and waters. The Department of the Interior, or DOI, should swiftly issue a five-year program for the Outer Continental Shelf and hold mandated quarterly onshore lease sales with equitable terms. DOI should reinstate cancelled sales and valid leases on federal lands and waters. Number 2. Designate critical energy infrastructure projects. Congress should authorize critical energy infrastructure projects to support the production, processing and delivery of energy. These projects would be of such concern to the national interest that they would be entitled to undergo a streamlined review and permitting process not to exceed one year. Number 3. Fix the NEPA permitting process. The Biden administration should revise the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, process by establishing agency uniformity in reviews, limiting reviews to two years, and reducing bureaucratic burdens placed on project proponents in terms of size and scope of application submissions. Number 4. Accelerate LNG exports and approve pending LNG applications. Congress should amend the Natural Gas Act to streamline the Department of Energy, or DOE, to a single approval process for all U.S. LNG projects. DOE should approve pending LNG applications to enable the U.S. to deliver reliable energy to our allies abroad. Number 5. Unlock investment and access to capital. The Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC, should reconsider its overly burdensome and ineffective climate disclosure proposal and the Biden administration should ensure open capital markets where access is based upon individual company merit, free from artificial constraints based on government-preferred investment allocations. Number 6. Dismantle supply chain bottlenecks. 
President Biden should rescind steel tariffs that remain on imports from U.S. allies, as steel is a critical component of energy production, transportation and refining. The Biden administration should accelerate efforts to relieve port congestion so that equipment necessary for energy development can be delivered and installed. Number 7. Advance Lower Carbon Energy Tax Provisions Congress should expand and extend Section 45Q tax credits for carbon capture, utilization, and storage development and create a new tax credit for hydrogen produced from all sources. Number 8. Protect competition in the use of refining technologies. The Biden administration should ensure that future federal agency rulemaking continues to allow U.S. refineries to use the existing critical process technologies to produce the fuels needed for global energy markets. Number 9. And permitting obstruction on natural gas projects. The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission should cease efforts to overstep its permitting authority under the Natural Gas Act and should adhere to traditional considerations of public needs as well as focus on direct impacts arising from the construction and operation of natural gas projects. Number 10. Advance the energy workforce of the future. Congress and the Biden administration should support the training and education of a diverse workforce through increased funding of work-based learning and advancement of STEM programs to nurture the skills necessary to construct and operate oil, natural gas and other energy infrastructure. Changes like these would make instant believers out of energy companies and their investors. All of them must be on board and believe that the mission is to produce enough oil and gas to eliminate Russia as a threat in energy markets, to obliterate its energy weapon. And in the process, the prices of energy commodities will be pushed back down, eliminating a big driver of inflation. None of this means we have to put the energy transition on the back burner. It just means that we must recognize that energy companies need to be treated as key players in the transition by keeping the proverbial wheels on traditional markets while at the same time working toward a rational, achievable level of decarbonization. There is an opportunity here to achieve the goals of both energy transition and energy security. The most significant step in that direction would be to embrace natural gas as a bridge fuel that would enable global economic growth in the most benign way that is realistically feasible. In addition, the critical mission could be coupled with higher 45Q tax credits, hydrogen tax credits and other inducements to promote additional drilling, with the stipulation that some part of the incremental profitability from the higher rate of production be invested in renewables, decarbonization and sustainability initiatives. It's possible and the energy industry has the expertise to drive significant change that would be quite the redemption arc. There are, of course, solutions that could help alleviate price pain in the near term, though they would seem to us kind of like putting a band-aid on a mortal wound. Many such solutions we discussed in our blog earlier this week, meet in the middle. The most effective short-term solutions are those that will increase supply. To that end, the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, in late April issued a waiver to allow E15 gasoline, gasoline that uses a 15% ethanol blend, to be sold during the summer driving season. However, as we said in turn 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 the effect of that move was negligible. A similar and more impactful move would be to waive specifications for reed vapor pressure or RVP. As we described in the blog tank full of butane, RVP is the pressure at which gasoline, or more accurately its components, vaporize at a given temperature. When it's hot outside, butane, a primary gasoline blending component, can evaporate into volatile organic compounds, or VOCs, between the gas station pump and your car and so is regulated by the EPA with the allowable RVP limit going down in the summer. If RVP limits were raised to the wintertime limit, or to the vapor lock index, or VLI, of cars, transportation fuel supplies could increase by 5% or more as additional butane volume could supplement the blend pool. 
Perhaps the most effective action so far has been the announced release of 1 million barrels per day of crude oil from the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve, or SPR. See, I want to break free. That move, which was announced in March and begun in May, will, for 180 days supplement U.S. crude oil supply. The move is necessarily short-term because there's only so much in storage and it's advisable to keep some reserve in case there's another disruption, like a hurricane. Further, as we said in Road to Nowhere, the release was intended to bridge the gap from supply shortage to higher production. Also, T the additional crude will be effective at blunting consumer prices only to the extent that we have the refining capacity to process it. As many, including President Biden and us, have noted, a key factor in the current situation is a shortage of refining capacity to be able to produce enough fuel. See cracking up. A few refiners shut down at the height of the COVID pandemic or converted to renewable production and most of those aren't coming back. U.S. atmospheric distillation capacity is down about 1 million barrels per day since July 2020 to less than 18 million barrels per day. The largest portion of the decline has been in Pad 3, or the Gulf Coast, which has lost nearly 0.4 million barrels per day of refining capacity in that time frame. Even before the pandemic, we talked about an unusually long list of refineries up for sale in Shop Around. That activity ramped up when margins nosedived, and refinery capacity was rationalized. And it's also worth noting, since the refining market is worldwide, that there have been significant global closures in Europe, Japan, Australia-slash-New Zealand, the Philippines, Singapore, and South Africa since the beginning of COVID. One refinery that might make a comeback is the Lime Tree Bay Refinery in St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands. With EPA approval, that refinery could bring back up to 200,000 barrels per day of refining capacity. And while it might not make finished gasoline and diesel, it would likely make jet fuel and further its production of other fuels could help free up capacity at other U.S. refineries. We'll talk about this in depth in an upcoming blog. However, other offline facilities, like the Convent and Alliance refineries in Louisiana, would cost billions to restart and so are probably not feasible in the short term. Finally, protecting the existing fleet of refineries shouldn't be overlooked. That includes making sure Lion Del Basel's Houston refinery keeps operating, and small refineries are not overly adversely affected by RFS requirements. Another short-term relief valve that we mentioned in Tuesday's blog is a Jones Act waiver, which could help reduce costs on the East Coast where prices are highest. The pipelines are full and we're short of Jones Act ships, so allowing foreign flagged vessels would help. So, what has been proposed so far? One suggestion being bandied about like a monkey with a machete is cutting exports. We believe that would be a disaster. To limit global supply in the face of a worldwide shortage would cause international prices to skyrocket while our own capacity would be underutilized. Another suggestion was advanced Wednesday when President Biden requested that Congress suspend the federal gasoline tax for three months. The move would immediately reduce gasoline costs by 18 cents per gallon and the diesel price by 24 cents per gallon. He also called on states to suspend their own gas taxes, some already have. However, one likely outcome of lower prices might be increased demand, which would put us right back in the same position because the root cause, supply, will still not be addressed. And that aspect has concerned economists who worry that lower prices, enabling increased demand, could stoke the fires of inflation. Further, the gas tax helps to finance the Highway Trust Fund and so the administration has also said that a gas tax holiday would include measures to safeguard the fund and avoid detrimental impacts on infrastructure. In 2008, a similar gas tax holiday proposal was dismissed by then-candidate Barack Obama as a gimmick designed purely to win votes. There is one more parallel we can draw from our movie analogy earlier. In many of the box crook movies, 
The twist in the final act is that the authority has no intent of letting the prisoner off in the end, despite accomplishing their mission. And examples in this vein includes 1997's The Jackal. And, with politics being politics, it's possible that the message to the industry from this administration will change with the next round of elections. Particularly if our politicians and industry leaders adopt measures that either fall far short or, however unlikely, go too far in incentivizing domestic production, it could lead to a quick reversal by the next administration. We'd get whipsawed again. A happy ending would be a measured response that gains bipartisan support, weakens Putin's energy weapon, and brings long-term stability to evolving energy markets. Man in the Box was written by Jerry Cantrell and Lane Staley and appears as the second song on Alice in Chains' debut album, Facelift. Released as a single in January 1991, the song went to number 8 on the Billboard Mainstream Rock Singles chart. The idea of using a talk box on the guitar in the song came to producer Dave Jordan as he was driving to the studio and Bon Jovi's Livin' on a Prayer came on the radio. Personnel on the record were, Lane Staley, lead vocals, Jerry Cantrell, guitar, backing vocals, Mike Starr, bass, backing vocals, and Sean Kinney, drums, percussion. Facelift was recorded between December 1989 and April 1990 at London Bridge Studio in Seattle and Capitol Studios in Hollywood, with Dave Jordan producing. Released in August 1990, the album went to number 42 on the Billboard 200 Albums chart. It has been certified 2X Platinum by the Recording Industry Association of America. Two singles were released from the LP. Alice in Chains is an American rock band formed in Seattle in 1987. The band rose to success as part of the grunge movement, along with Seattle bands such as Nirvana, Pearl Jam, and Soundgarden. Alice in Chains has released six studio albums, three live albums, five compilation albums, three EPs, and 32 singles, and has sold more than 30 million records worldwide. Six members have passed through the band's ranks since its formation. Original lead vocalist Lane Staley died in April 2002 at the age of 34 and original bassist Mike Starr died in March 2011 at the age of 44. The band continues to tour, with a new tour beginning in August with Bush as the opener. There are tentative plans to record a new album after the tour ends in October. Thanks for listening to the RBN Daily Energy Blogcast. For more information on energy market reports, maps, and consulting engagements, please visit us at rbnenergy.com. And thanks for rocking with us.